This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Haffel. The Spring Fire, now one of the largest in state history, has claimed more than 100 homes. And as of last night, it was 35 percent contained. Tamara Estes and her family own eight homes near La Vida. And she's recently learned the fate of some of them. Hi, Tamara. Hello. Well, it sounds like your family has a strong connection to that part of southern Colorado. Can you tell us briefly about these homes and the place they have in your family? Um, my grandfather bought the ranch on La Vida Pass in the 1940s. And um, my parents bought the biggest portion from him. We have about 900 acres. And then I have several cousins and aunts, aunts that have places, too. And you've so been there for, like, for many generations, it sounds like. Yes, my my grandmother was born in Walsenburg in 1891, oh, wow. and so my family's been in Warfano County since the 1870s. And so what's become of these homes? What what do you know? Um, I know my parents is gone. Hmm. Uh, my aunt and uncles is gone. And I believe one of the cousins is gone. Another aunt is gone. One There's two that we know that were saved. And the other one was out more closer to um, the Family homestead was closer to 520, County Road 520, and that's, it, it's in evacuation zone, but it's still safe. Wow. So so five, possibly five, four or five of those homes are gone. I mean, how, how is that feeling? It's, it hurts because my parents, our, our cabin, my parents built from scratch themselves. The stone, the rock was off of our place. The rafters in the cabin were lodgepole pine off of our place that they pulled down and skinned old and everything did this, everything, you know, it's hard. Yeah. And to be clear, you join us well north of the fire in Fountain, Colorado. So we're not talking about your primary residence, right? It was my parents' primary residence for many, many years. Yeah. And so, but as my parents, they're in their 90s. And so, you know, it's, we spend our, all our summers down there. Yeah. Has the family rallied since the fire? Uh, some have, <laughs> some are incredibly angry yet about everything, which is understandable. Why? Because the, because the homes were lost? Because the homes were lost and, you know, we don't totally understand why, you know, we didn't get resources on this a little quicker, but it was, the drought conditions were so horrendous. I don't know if they could have done anything because yeah. it was so incredibly dry. Now, before the fire, had you taken steps to protect the homes, uh, like mitigation, I mean? We have done some, um, not as well around our house because there were some big trees right up next to the house and it was hard to get it down, but we had cleared the brush around. And we usually run the sprinklers and everything to try to keep everything soaked down, but there was no water this year to do any of that. So things were very, very dry there. Exceedingly dry. And my my dad's been going up there for over 70 years and he's never not had the springs running. Now, in terms of rebuilding, is there insurance that you can fall back on to, to help rebuild some of these we homes? We do not have. We do not have any insurance. Hmm. Um, I don't think one aunt and uncle had any. I, the rest of them, I don't know. It's still incredibly hard to get insurance in there because of the drought conditions and the location. It would just be incredibly expensive. Do you plan to rebuild then? Oh, yes. Yeah, we've already started talking about, you know, do we rebuild at the same site or do we move the site a little bit? Now, how does this affect other members of your family? Um, I'm assuming you said they were rallying, some were upset, but but speak a little bit more about that. It's very hard on my dad because he'll be 93 this month 
And that was his life. That was his lifeblood, that whole ranch. That, that's all he thought about was the ranch and everything that was going on up there. And so it's very, very hard on him, very hard. And I'm just hoping that it doesn't take his will to live because at his age. Do you have larger concerns about how this area of southern Colorado will be affected by the spring fire? Extremely, because this Warfano County and Castilla County, they're very, they're poor counties and they don't have the resources to, you know, these people aren't going to have a lot of resources to rebuild and they count on the tourism in the summer and that's gone. So it's just, you know, these ranchers, they're going to have a hard time because their grassland was burned. And so how do you feed cattle this winter if you can't get hay in? And so it's like starting at square one, it sounds like. It is for a lot of them. So it's just, there's a lot of concerns and it's like, Levita is a very small town. And so they just, they're not going to have the resources like of Denver or Colorado Springs to, to get the help that they need. I'm hoping that they can. Yeah. Because that, that town means a lot to us. My mother graduated from high school down there. My my grandfather was a coal miner in Warfano County. So, you know, we have deep connections, and we don't want to see anything more lost. Well, stay safe down there. Thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. And, and please keep in touch as, as the recovery effort continues. Well, thank you. And thanks for getting the word out, you know, as you... I'm encouraging everybody to please visit Levita after the fire is out because they've got some great little shops down there and stuff and, you know, help the economy in that way. Yeah. And like you said, tourism is such a big part of that area. Thanks for joining us. That's Tamara Estes, a longtime resident of Southern Colorado. She spoke with us from Fountain about the loss of multiple family homes in the spring fire and the lasting impacts of that blaze on the community. Many people housed at the Federal Detention Facility in Aurora are arrested at the U.S.-Mexico border or in cities as far away as New York. That means some detainees, in this case adults, end up far from anyone they know. And if they're released, they may not have money, a phone, or a place to go. CPR's Andrew Dukakis found out about a local group that works on the front lines of the country's controversial immigration system. Andrea, welcome. Thanks, Nathan. The group is called Casa de Paz, and you went to the Aurora Detention Facility to see how they find detainees who need help. Can you tell us about that? Right. Release time at the facility is 6 p.m. on weekdays, so I drove out there. It's in a remote part of Aurora, and the actual facility is a large industrial-like building with a big American flag flying out front. Every evening at 6, a volunteer from Casa de Paz arrives and walks up to the front desk. We're just wondering if anybody needs to get picked up today. Um, let me call the let me call intake and make sure nobody else is coming up front. Okay. Priscilla Jimenez lives in Boulder, and she just started volunteering, so it's her first time doing pickup. And Andrea, what are the reasons a detained person would be released? Detainees are released for different reasons. Often it's because they've bonded out and are still in immigration proceedings, or they win their case and can legally be in the U.S. There's been a lot in the news lately about family separation, immigrant parents, some of them asylum seekers being kept apart from their children. How does that fit in? 
Well, there reportedly have been about 50 people at the Aurora facility who fall into that category of parents separated from their children. Casa de Paz has worked with a few of these parents to help them try to find their children. But really, the group is dealing with a broader range of detainees. All right. So back to your recent visit, was there anyone at the Aurora facility who needed help? No, not when I visited, but some days there are as many as five people. When they're walking out of the facility, the volunteers ask them if they have a place to go. Sometimes they're local and their families are there to pick them up. If not, volunteers like Jimenez take them to a house called Casa de Paz or House of Peace in Spanish. Hi, Sarah Andrea. Nice to meet you. Thank you for coming. Thanks for having me. Sarah Jackson started Casa de Paz and lives at the house, too. Right when you walk in the front door, there's this huge map of the United States. Jackson says she shows just-released detainees where they are on the map, where Colorado is. Many had never been to Colorado before they were detained. And she said she had the idea for Casa de Paz six years ago. I started Casa de Paz in an apartment, a one-bedroom, tiny little apartment right across the street from the detention center. Her original mission was to invite the families of detainees who lived in places like California, Oklahoma, and New York so they could visit their loved one in detention. They could come and stay with me in my apartment, and it would not cost them anything, and we would have food, and we would have toiletries, and just the basic stuff that they need. And then when they left to go back home, we would put gas in their tank, and then we'd say goodbye. Then the mission evolved to include people just released from detention who needed to find their way back home. So a year ago, Jackson started renting this house in Aurora. There's a big kitchen on the main floor along with two bedrooms, one for Sarah Jackson, another for a volunteer who lives there. And downstairs, there are two bunk rooms, one for men and one for women. Each bedroom is pretty similar, two bunk beds. And then for our guests, when they arrive, we show them to their bedroom and to their bed, and on the bed we have a note welcoming them to the CASA. This one says, congratulations on your release from immigrant detention. We're glad you're here. And then in each bedroom, we also have closets full of clothes so that um, when they get here, they can pick out a new outfit or maybe, you know, they need some new shoes. We'll tell you in a bit how she pays for all of this. Oh, good. I've been wondering about that. Well, was there anyone staying at the house when you were there? There was a woman who lived in Telluride whose fiancé was arrested by ICE there because he was undocumented. On another day, volunteers had brought home a man who had just been released. My name is Gustavo Peña Espinosa. I'm 39 years old, and I come from Mexico, from La Piedad, Michoacán. And I live now in Truckee, California, close to Reno, Nevada. Peña Espinosa came to the U.S. illegally 20 years ago and had been living in California. He has five children there. Last year, he says he left the U.S. and visited Mexico, but when he tried to return through Tijuana, he was detained by ICE and brought to this Aurora facility. A few months later, he was released, met by a volunteer from Casa de Paz, and brought to this house. I don't have a family in Denver. I never be here. That's hard to find a hotel or something like that. But now... These guys help me, and I'm figured out all to go back to my house. Sarah Jackson says she believes Peña Espinosa is now back in California having won his case and is legally residing in the U.S. So that's the idea behind Casa de Paz. All right. Thanks, Andrea. Sure. Well, we had more questions, so we invited founder Sarah Jackson to join us. Hi, Sarah. Hi. As we said, you started the Casa six years ago in a one-bedroom apartment Was there something specific that happened that made you want to do this? 
Yes, I was on a trip. Uh, I went to the Mexico and U.S. border, and I saw firsthand the suffering that was happening to people due to our immigration policies, and specifically families that wanted to be together that couldn't be together. And my family is the most important thing in my life, and so I wanted to help do something to create a space so families could reunite. So is it the feeling of family that motivates you to do this? Yes, and the reality that I have a privilege that at any moment of any day I can be with my family, and that's something that millions of people do not have. We should say that a lot of the people you work with are in the country without documentation. Some even may have charges pending for crimes committed in the U.S. Do you worry that at times you may be helping bad guys? I think we're all human at the end of the day, and I think we've all done things that we're not proud of. And I also believe that whether or not you've committed a crime, at the end of the day, everybody can appreciate a home-cooked meal and a roof over their head as they're trying to make it home. And so when these these uh, people come to your home, you open them up, uh, op- open up the, 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 the rooms and the homes and things like that? Yeah. So I live at the Casa, and then I also have another full-time volunteer that lives there with me as well. And then we have a team of volunteers that are surrounding the guests and uh, Oliver and myself, the other gentleman that lives there. So there's always a community around our guests. Uh, we were never, you know, uh, one-on-one, so it's uh, teamwork. Got it. And you're very close to the Aurora facility. Yes, we're located about 15 minutes away in between the detention center and the airport, which is really nice because most of our guests who have been released from the detention center get home via the airport. So we're right on the way. We should say that the Aurora facility is run by a private company, GEO. And there's a class action suit against the center. Detainees say they were forced to work for a dollar a day. Uh, The company says that work was voluntary. Uh, You also have a program where volunteers visit people who are detained in Aurora. What's the purpose of those visits? Just to be a friendly face, to stop by and remind the people who are locked up that they are not alone, that they're not forgotten about. And there are people in this community who don't even know who they are but care about them. And how long are these meetings? Are they an hour, two hours? The visits are about an hour, and they are non-contact, so they're all done through a glass window and a telephone. And like like I said, the main purpose is just to send people to spend time with the men and the women who are locked up who have no one visiting them. So we've actually met with people who have been detained for over a year, and no one has stopped by to visit them because maybe their family lives in another state, or maybe their family lives locally, but they're undocumented, so they cannot enter the facility. What do you talk about? Well, lately, we've been talking a lot about the World Cup. Uh, So sports, I mean, local events, things that are happening. Sometimes you meet with someone and they just want to tell you everything that's on their mind and just vent. Sometimes they just want to get out of their pod and just have a distraction from their monotonous day. And so you are the one doing most of the talking. It's uh, every every visit is different. And, you know, speaking of sports, I, I know there's a, there's a question about money. How do you pay for this? Yeah, it's actually through a volleyball league called Volleyball Internacional. And I was desperate for money when I first started the Casa about six years ago. I had run out of all of my savings and I wanted to quit. I wanted to throw up my hands and walk away because I had no money. But my friend encouraged me to find a way to make some money. And so what I did is I started a volleyball league 
because I love volleyball. And now we have this year-round volleyball league that people can join. They pay to play. And then at the end of the season, all of the profit that we have is donated to the CASA to pay for our expenses. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Sarah Jackson runs Casa de Paz. She has a house near the Federal Detention Center in Aurora for immigrants and families. In 1975, at the tail end of the Vietnam War, there was a dramatic airlift. Thousands of people were evacuated out of Saigon as North Vietnamese troops approached the city. The people here were herded into groups. All they could take was hand luggage. Fifty at a time, they took off for the carriers waiting in the South China Sea. Among the evacuees, Denverite Diana Kuei Win's father and his family. Win is a poet, and her latest book, Ghost Of, is about the trauma of war and, years later, the loss of her brother to suicide. She spoke to Ryan Warner in April. Let's start with a poem that begins with the fall of Saigon. I'll have you read the first part of I Keep Getting Things Wrong. I keep getting things wrong. One. My father, just out of his teens, stands on the rooftop of the embassy in Saigon, his birthplace. He gives his hand to his mother, and all around them a thousand hands reach up, not to wave. None of his siblings died, their bodies like a fine chain balled tight in a fist. They made it out alive. Why is he looking at me like this? Tell us how your father's family came to be a part of the evacuation before the fall of Saigon. Sure. So my grandfather worked for the American embassy, and on the 27th, the whole family arrived at the embassy, so just before the fall of Saigon, and they all left. And it's kind of like a miracle, right? Like the whole family. And there's about at least, I have 10 aunts and uncles. So it's quite a large family. And it's quite a unique story in that they were all together. And then they arrived in the U.S. in Pasadena, California Mm. on May 2nd. And they began their new life there. And that's, you know, also kind of where my my life and my story begins as well. You, You sound in many ways surprised that your father, his family made it out. Many families didn't. I mean, my mother's family is a different story. My other grandfather, so my maternal grandfather, also worked for the embassy. And he was told on the 22nd, he was given 24 hours, and he was told by the embassy, bring whoever you want tomorrow, and you can leave. And my grandfather didn't realize that the war was ending, that the South was losing, and he had a lot of pride in the South. And so he came home and he had this big conversation with my mother's family, which is also about 11 siblings and my grandmother. Mm-hmm. And they had a business. They had a pharmacy in Saigon. And in the end, they decided to have the two youngest brothers leave because they were worried about the two brothers having to go to war and fight. So, you know, to protect the male members of the family. And in the end, it was just my grandfather and the youngest uncles and my eldest aunt who left. But as they were walking to the embassy, they realized that they had made this big mistake because they saw all of the, you know, the photos that we have seen of all the hands and the people trying to climb the gates, trying to get out. And it was too late for them to turn back to get the rest of the family. So, I mean, they flew out and my mother and her grandmother and all her youngest siblings stayed behind and they had a much different, difficult journey four years later of getting to America to reunite. Four reunite. years later. Four wow. years later. Many attempts. The poem we opened with continues and connects to your family's life in the United States and to your brother's 
death. Yes. He took his own life in 2014. That is correct, in December. And some of your poetry literally takes the shape of Mm -hmm. your brother in photographs that he had cut himself out of. Yes. Tell me about that. Sure. Uh, About two years before he committed suicide, my parents woke up, and when they walked down the halls, all the family portraits looked different. Um, There were now shards missing, and in the middle of the night, my brother had cut himself out meticulously with an X-Acto knife and then slipped all the photographs back into the frames. So it was quite disturbing for my parents. And actually, for a long time, these frames remained the same, even after his death. I mean, I'd go home and I'd have to walk the halls and see these remnants. And they held they held a really disturbing resonance while he was alive and a different kind of resonance, you know, after he passed. And... It took a while for me to figure out I wanted to do something with them, especially in my grief in the mourning process as a way to kind of counteract this absence, this void, this loss, as a way to fill that that space back in, in a sense, to fill him back in. And on the pages of this new collection, Ghost Of, you have poetry that is sort of squeezed into the shapes of those missing images. Thanks for speaking with us. It's been a pleasure to meet you. Thank you so much. Diana Coy Wynn's latest book is Ghost Of. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. About a year after China announced it will no longer take most of the world's recycling, the industry is struggling to rebound. West Coast states that heavily rely on exporting their recyclables to China have resorted to landfilling their materials. Colorado isn't at that level yet, but the ripples of China's decision are being felt around the state. CPR's Alexander McMahon has the story. That loud ruckus is a high-speed plastic sorter at the Boulder County Recycling Center. In a single millisecond, the machine's infrared technology can tell the difference between a milk jug and a shampoo bottle. Then it uses its 100-horsepower air jet to shoot it into the right container. Boulder County Conservation Manager Darla Ahrens says this machine sorts much more efficiently than any person could, but only a couple material recovery facilities, or MRFs, use this technology in the state. Yeah, and other MRFs are looking at installing this type of equipment. I mean, with the new restrictions from China, they pretty much have to in order to keep up. Those restrictions from China she's referring to are impacting recycling across the globe. Until recently, China was the leading importer of recyclable material and took in over half of America's recycling and remanufactured it. But then last year, China said thanks, but no thanks to foreign waste. Wolf Cray with Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment says part of the problem was the level of contamination in the recyclables. Because the markets have been so high and there's been such a demand from China, we haven't done the best job necessarily as far as limiting the waste that's gone into the recycling stream. And that we includes not just the processing facilities, but also me, you, your mom, your grandparents, anyone who might not be the most diligent of recyclers. Colorado has a problem that the industry likes to call wish cycling. That means someone puts something in the recycling bin that they think could be recycled, but really it can't. So styrofoam is a big no-no. Plastic cups. Small pieces of plastic. The takeout containers to go containers. Film plastic. You go to any grocery store, any gas station, 
And there's film plastic now wrapping so many products. To make it even more complicated, just because a product has those recycling arrows doesn't mean a facility can process or resell it. Aaron's recommends you check with your recycling company to be clear what they will accept, but some things should be pretty obvious. You can see that huge piece of metal he just pulled out. That would destroy our OCC screen, our cardboard screen, which is the first piece of equipment that the material hits. If that had gone past him, the facility would have to shut down. On top of making sure rogue items don't end up wrecking the equipment, these processors now have to also make sure the recyclables are pristinely sorted. Part of China's new restrictions is that it will only take recycling that has 0.5% or less of contamination. So contamination like a red Solo cup ending up in a bale of cardboard is now a much bigger deal. Under the new rules, China has also completely stopped accepting mixed paper and certain grades of plastic. Alpine Waste and Recycling is responsible for collecting the entire city of Denver's recyclables. Brent Hildebrand, Alpine's VP of Recycling, says they ship about 40 percent of their materials to foreign markets, mostly China. So the new restrictions created some challenges. We had to add some more labor to the system to help sort better and get some of the contaminants out of the stream. But then on top of that, we had to slow down the system so the people could see the materials a little easier. Hildebrand says Alpine is trying hard to meet that 0.5% contamination limit so they can keep sending some of their recycling to China. And then on these belts, this is where we're sorting the majority of the material that goes to China or another country. So what we're looking for here is mainly all brown material, so cardboard or any plastics. See, we got a lot of people up here as well, right? It's a lot more than normal. Another way Alpine and other haulers across the state are handling these changes? By using the Boulder facility to sort and sell their recyclables. Boulder can do it cheaper than most because it has that plastic sorting machine, which saves on labor costs, and it mostly sells to American markets so it can find buyers faster than the facilities that rely on foreign markets. Our inbound tonnage has gone up around 1,500 to 2,000 tons per month from other MRFs and haulers in the region. Aaron says the recycling facilities in Colorado work more on a partnership basis than a competitive basis because they all have a common goal. Hildebrand at Alpine agrees. Really, my competitor isn't another processor. It's the landfill. I worry more about what we're charging at the landfills. I wish we'd charge more to get more recycling, more waste diversion. 98% of Boulder's waste goes to American buyers for remanufacturing. But they can't take everything. Facilities in other counties are still scrambling to find new markets for a lot of their material. Here's Wolf Cray again at CDPHE. You have essentially this big buildup of all the recyclables that are still getting collected and stored at recycling centers that need to go somewhere. So because there's more generation, essentially, it's devaluing the prices. So that's tough for the recyclers. They're not making as much money on the actual end products when they sell them. Which brings up the other side of this problem. Market values for recycled paper, plastics, aluminum, etc. have plummeted since the China restrictions went into place. And that affects all recyclers, whether they sell to China or not. Here's Boulder's Darla Ahrens again. If we get to the point where we're getting a zero dollar or we were going to be charged for a particular type of material, then we will hold on to it for 30 days and see what sort of pricing we can get in the next month. 
Even though Alpine and Boulder are working hard to clean up their materials, Cray says the 0.5% contamination limit is steep. 0.5% of an entire bale by weight is pretty much a sliver. So at this point, they've basically banned the export from us, the import to them of, uh, of recyclable materials. Instead of working on meeting those strict requirements, Cray thinks the solution lies in developing and bolstering domestic markets for recyclables. To that end, CDPHE offers grants to organizations to help develop recycling infrastructure in the state. In 2017, the program handed out 22 grants that went as high as $400,000. For example, an Iowa company called Rewall that buys waste and turns it into building material is expanding to Colorado with the help of this program. Another solution Cray mentioned has to do with the three R's, reduce, reuse, and recycle. Cray says there should be more emphasis on the first two and less reliance on the third. I'm Alexandra McMahon, CPR News. Well, let's take a closer look now at those three R's, reduce, reuse, and recycle, and the idea of zero waste. EcoCycle, a Boulder-based nonprofit, runs the county's recycling center. Its mission is to build zero-waste communities, meaning everything a community uses can eventually be reused. The group also teaches people how the stuff they throw out contributes to climate change. EcoCycle's Harlan Savage is here. Hi, Harlan. Good morning. It's really great to be here. What does the term zero waste mean to EcoCycle? Well, zero waste is pretty much what you'd think. It's no waste. And that may seem like an unattainable goal because we have all normalized waste. And to us, it's nothing to throw materials in the trash can and in the landfill. But what's happened is that we have this linear system of production where we go and we mine and we drill and we log to get natural resources, trees, water, minerals, to make our stuff. But then when we're done with them, we send them to the landfill, and it's a complete dead end. Um, And that needs to change. A zero-waste system is it's a circular economy right so we want to be making products that are easy to repurpose and reuse basically we want to imitate nature nature doesn't create any waste and that's what we want to do too and what is EcoCycle's role in Boulder County in creating these zero-waste communities? What does that relationship look like? Well, EcoCycle started in Boulder in 1976. We actually, with a bunch of volunteers, got curbside recycling going. We were one of the first 20 communities in the nation to do that. And what we found with that program is that people were really excited about recycling. And so since then, we've grown. We not only work in Boulder County, we work throughout the state of Colorado, nationally and globally, um, to help communities set their own zero-waste goals and get the systems, the infrastructure in place so that they can move down the path to zero waste. In the story, the case is made that we need to focus more on the first two R's, reduce and reuse and less rely on the third, recycling. Yes. Do you agree with that? Yes, I would say that that's absolutely true. Um, zero waste practices are reduce first, then reuse, then recycle, and I would add composting. Mm. Um, and that's what we we need to be doing all of them. But I think that in the last few decades, we've really come to rely heavily on recycling because that sort of fits the paradigm. When you're done with something, you throw it in the trash 
or the recycling bin. But we need to change that because we simply cannot uh, recycle all of the waste we're generating, particularly plastic waste, which some of which sticks around, actually all of which sticks around in some form forever. So recycling is important, but it's not the whole story. And we're talking about systems and processes and things mm-hmm. like that. So, but, but let's talk about a person's waste. Sure. Like, let's say someone in Longmont or Colorado Springs. Right. How do they contribute to this wider issue of climate change? Well, that's a great cre- question. I'm glad you asked it because recycling and composting and certainly the whole slew of zero waste practices are actually really important in fighting against climate change. Um, If you look at recycling, for example, uh, when we recycle, we conserve a lot of energy. We conserve a lot of water. Just think about when you recycle an aluminum can and that can is made into another can, it takes 95% less energy to make that can out of recycled material. So you, um, as a, a consumer, you you can really help by putting that aluminum can in the recycling bin. And composting is, is similar, extremely good benefits for the climate. Um, when we When we compost, um, instead of throwing our organics in the landfill, we're preventing release of a very potent greenhouse gas called methane. And that's generated when you throw organics in a landfill in an environment without oxygen. And we don't want to be doing that uh, anymore. And it's interesting that a big chunk of our waste. I mean, your, your waste at home, too, is organic material. So we don't want to be doing that anymore. And you can have an impact as an individual well, by composting. What can people do besides composting to reduce their waste uh, on the front end and, and, and maybe help contribute to the, to the change in, in climate? Sure. So on the front end, um, one thing that you can do is to be a smart consumer. And as Darla was mentioning, uh, one thing that we use a lot of um, in our daily lives is plastic. And so we want to be mindful when we go shopping. Are we, are we buying something in plastic or that's wrapped in plastic that's extremely hard to recycle, um, depending on the type of plastic it is? Or is there another alternative that has less packaging that would generate, you know, less weight, waste? Uh, and I was just at the store the other day looking to buy some corn, and I thought, I don't want to buy this in a plastic wrap. You know, corn comes in a nice biodegradable wrapper called the husk. Uh, and consumers can also be buying products that are made from recycled materials. That's also really important in terms of creating markets for those materials. Colorado hasn't always been the best at recycling. We've often ranked far behind other states, mm-hmm. which can be surprising to some because we really love, uh, you know, our yeah. state. And and I know there are many people that are environmentally conscious about, you know, living in Colorado. Is anything changing here that would allow us to maybe catch up? I think so. I mean, Coloradans are strong conservationists, and it's kind of strange that even though we're conservationists, you know, I think it's something like 40% of us don't recycle regularly. And that's partly because a lot of people in Colorado don't have access to services. So that's an important part like of the city service, equation. city recycling, things like yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. I think it's about half of Colorado counties do not have curbside recycling, residential recycling service. That's a good example. And so does all that just end up in a landfill then? Yeah. 
I see. <laughs> and so it really is, it, it is not just the people in their homes, but it's also these communities and these industries that are, that are having to make this change, it sounds like. Absolutely. And I think EcoCycle really believes this is a moment of opportunity um, to create the kinds of domestic markets that we need to have a healthy, sustainable recycling industry. At the same time, we're, we're focusing a lens and encouraging people to reduce consumption, be smart consumers, and reuse products. You know, go to thrift stores to buy things or maybe pay a little bit more money for a product that's going to last longer. We need to develop a different kind of relationship to our stuff and think about where did that come from? You know, that's that's really important to make that connection between this piece of paper that I just wadded up and threw in the trash can and a forest. You know, this is all it's all connected. And and what about the economics of this? Is it more expensive to do what you're asking people to do? Possibly. Um, What I would what I would say is that EcoCycle has has the view that zero waste is um, is our mission, in fact. And we've done a tremendous amount of work in Boulder County, and our partnership with the county, for example, is a beautiful one because the county is also working towards zero waste. And the people in Boulder have said, you know, this is what's most important to us. And if we can generate some revenue to keep the program going, that's terrific. But our main purpose is not to make Money. Our main pers- purpose is to protect public health, to protect the climate, and to protect this beautiful place called Colorado uh, where we live. I was just thinking, I, I see you have a coffee cup here, and I was thinking, like, how many people throw out its paper, right? And you throw it in the recycling, and it goes through the process. But you were mentioning before that that may not be the case. Can you explain that a bit? Sure. Um, so I'm sitting here with a paper uh, coffee cup. And everybody knows what these are, right? Take out paper coffee cups. Looks like paper is paper, but uh, there's a flaw, I'm going to say, in terms of <laughs> recycling this item, which is that the inside is lined with a thin film of pr- plastic. So actually, most coffee cups that you get from, that you take out, right, cannot be recycled because of that thin plastic film. Um, you can't even see it. It looks like paper. No, you can't. It is really, really hard to tell. And in fact, the one I'm holding right now is compostable. And it's very important uh, to read labels. I want to emphasize that too. And this is a really good example because it says right on the label, excuse me, that it's certified BPI, the Biodegradable Products Institute, and that it can be recycled in an industrial facility. So this cup is good to go for composting. Um, but really, you got, again, we're back to you've got to be a smart consumer. And I, I also think that w- corporations need to start taking more responsibility for their products. And this is one thing that EcoCycle uh, supports, which is extended uh, producer responsibility or take-back programs. Because, you know, frankly, we have so much stuff so many products. I mean, it's amazing and it's wonderful, but it's also confusing for the consumer. And so we're really looking towards companies to take responsibility for these products, to maybe think about making them reusable, recyclable, or compostable at the outset and taking responsibility for that. That's going to make a big difference. Yeah. And so the really big Mm. thing for at least uh, people at home is to read those labels. 
read those labels and, you know, also be active in, in your community. Uh, EcoCycle has a whole program called EcoCycle Solutions Hub, where we work directly with communities, with local governments that are interested in creating their own zero waste uh, program. And that's, that's really important because we do need to change the system and we do need the policies and laws to make this work. Thanks so much for joining us. You're welcome. Harlan Savage is with EcoCycle, a Boulder-based nonprofit that helps communities reduce their waste and carbon footprint. When you got in your car this morning, did you check to see if you had both your license plates? The Denver Police Department says thefts of Colorado plates are on the rise for a number of reasons, but there are ways to thwart a potential thief. I met Denver Police Officer Robert Gibbs, who patrols District 1 in northwest Denver, in the CPR parking lot. He had some tips on how to protect your car and your plates from theft. We've seen license plate thefts increase over the past year or so. Mm -hmm. Give us kind of a quick background about what that means. Why should we care about license plates being stolen? Well, first of all, at this time last year in our district, and I'm only speaking specifically for District 1, but it is a citywide problem. Let's get that out right right off the bat. But at this time last year, we had maybe 25, 30 license plate thefts, okay? Right now, we're over 300. So you had 20 to 30 last year at this time. Now you have over a th- how many? Over 300. And why is that? Well, there's many factors. Um, we think a lot of the times uh, the perpetrators of this particular crime are possibly using these plates to commit other crimes. And let me give an example. So let's say we have a particular individual that wants to commit uh, auto burglaries on a specific block uh, where there's a lot of cars parked. And they're going to be, of course, obviously using their car for at least 10 to 15 minutes on this particular block because it only takes about two or three seconds to break into a car. Okay, uh, If somebody should see that car, their car, uh, they definitely don't want the plate that's, that's rightfully assigned to their car being seen. They want it to be some other plate. So, um, and they may do that three or four times a night, meaning that they may steal three or four plates in one night. So that is a problem. Also, registration fraud. Uh, you know, we're, we're not going to you know, beat around the bush here. It's expensive to register your car in Denver. And some people may be having f- tough financial times. Um, so they may see a vehicle that matches the color, make, and model and help themselves to that plate to delay the time that they may have to register their vehicle. So we really want to encourage people that once they notice that their license plate is missing, uh, they w- we want them to report it right away immediately, not to wait. Uh, that way it gets into the system so that if an officer is, of course, driving down the road doing normal patrol work um, and they notice something uh, that's out of the ordinary on a vehicle, they can run that plate. And if it comes back stolen, a, traf- a traffic stop is initiated and that plate could be recovered. And then they can look into other things. Uh, let's say that that driver of that vehicle that has a stolen license plate uh, is contacted. They may be responsible for several uh, auto burglaries in the area. And so that really helps facilitate solving these crimes. And is this also a statewide issue or is this just a Denver issue? Are we seeing thefts increase across Colorado? I think it's a metro area wide problem right now. And so we're trying to do the best we can with getting the word out in regards to what we did back in 2016 is we obtained some funds and we, we bought thousands of these screws that are, they're not theft proof, they're theft prevention. 
and you need a special tool to install them or uninstall them. And uh, because of the recent spike, we're really pushing people to have these installed. And we do have events throughout District 1, maybe once a month. But anybody can go to any Denver police station. There's six of them in the, in the metro area or in Denver area. And they can have them installed. It takes minutes. And are these free or do they have to buy these things? Or? They are completely free. And we also give them information on the tool that's used. We ask that people don't, of course, disperse this, uh, you know, this what this tool is. But it takes a special tool. And I, I, and I can say with all certainty that these people that are committing these thefts don't walk around with this tool readily available. They may walk around with a fill screwdriver or a flat nose, something to help facilitate the theft of the plate. But when they come across these screws, you can't, you can't, re, you can't uh, remove them without like a vice grip or a pliers or something. And that takes some time. And they don't want to be seen in the back of somebody's car on some street at 2 in the morning uh, spending 10, 15, 20 minutes trying to remove a license plate. They want to remove it quickly. We're constantly uh, preaching a message to not leave anything visible in your car. And I'm talking anything, even change in your cup holder. Uh, it takes literally two to three seconds at most to break in and grab whatever they see, gym bags, purses, wallets. Uh, some people think, oh, I'm going to leave my $150 pair of Oakleys in the car. You know what? It's $150 worth of pair of Oakleys. doesn't cost anybody to break, to, to break the window and steal them. So we're in this parking lot here at CPR. We see all different kinds of license plates, different uh, makes and models of cars. Is there a certain plate that uh, would attract a license plate uh, thief more than others? Um, I would say uh, I don't think there's a specific car and there's not a specific model or, or a year or maybe a color may be attractive. Because let's say that you have somebody that's going to, like I said earlier, that's going to go out and, and commit some auto burglaries. Now, what about personalized license plates? Or let's say an Arizona license plate, something that you may not see everywhere. Or one of the plates that says, support my X, Y, and Z. Would that be less of a, of, of a stealable plate? Um, we haven't really seen, to be honest with you, prestige plates where they're personalized uh, arise in those. Um, because they're, they're specific they attract attention because people look at them a little bit and they try to read them. I do myself when I'm working. So I think that those are less apt to be stolen just because they do attract attention. People look at them a little more readily than they do a normal license plate. Yeah. Give people some tips about what they can do right now. They're listening. Maybe they go home. They pull in their driving, uh, their, their parking lot. Uh, what can they do to, to say, am I prepared or not for this? Okay. Number one, the number one deterrent to crime is lighting. So when you go home at night and you park in your driveway and if you have a, a driveway light or a porch light, we ask people to turn those on. Leave them on. And if, it's, if, if you're worried about energy consumption, you can change your light to uh, you know, a fluorescent type light or we recommend LED. Yes, they're a little bit more expensive, but in the long run they pay for themselves because they last 15 to 20 years. There's no filament that can be broken and they're bright and they render really good color rendering. Meaning if you see somebody under an LED light, you could tell what color shirt they're wearing, pants, their ethnicity, you know, if they have tattoos. They're really easy to decipher under an LED light. Uh, number two, uh, don't leave anything visible in your car. Uh, that's going to attract somebody to break in your car and steal it, especially a purse, a bag, a gym bag, wallets, laptop cases, anything that's going to attract attention. Please, we ask, don't leave those in your car. If you have to leave something like that, if you have a trunk, put it in your trunk. If you don't, just take it in the house with you. Save yourself the heartache of having to replace that. Save yourself the heartache of having to replace your broken window. Uh, we also make sure your car's locked as well, too. Okay. And number four, 
Um, if you would like to have your license plate screws replaced and installed with these theft prevention screws, go to any Denver Police Department station. There's six of them. Any day, any time, and we'll replace them free of charge. Thanks so much for joining us. All right. Thank you for having me. Robert Gibbs of the Denver Police Department. Finally today, some listener feedback. We did an interview with a college student who started a fashion and lifestyle magazine for conservatives. It's called Expressions, the creation of 22-year-old Lacey Williams. It's important to give girls like me, older gals, younger gals, that it's okay to be conservative. Jim Arthurs of Denver didn't think we pushed back enough, especially when she talked about the left hating free speech. He tweeted sarcastically, quote, really great reporting there. If you think we've missed the mark or hit the nail on the head, let us know. Find all the ways to get in touch at CPR.org slash connect. And that's our show. Thanks to executive editor Ryan Warner, our producers Anthony Cotton, Andrew Dukakis, and Michelle P. Fulcher, our audio engineers Matt Herz and Michael Hughes. Our theme was written and performed by Kip Kipper at Coop Studios in Boulder. Follow us on Twitter at Colorado Matters, or of course, connect with us on Facebook at CPR News, and email us, as we said, click connect at the top of CPRnews.org. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Have a great day.